the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see you bite. Let me see your scar. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. Hello and welcome to All We Hear is Purple, the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the internet. I'm Andrew Berg, and we finally did it. We got the triple threat on the podcast tonight. It's a very poor way of explaining that there are three hosts this evening. Both Gaby Lucas and Coach B are with us. Gaby, I'm going to say hi to you first. How's it going, Gaby? It's good. It's good. I'm glad that you mentioned my name and told me because I was getting distracted by my cat. Yeah, it's not like a lady. How about you, Coach? How are you doing tonight? Oh, you know, it could be worse. Although I am taking this from uh, recording this podcast from a phone booth at my office, so (laughs) that's always a good time. Yeah, this is always the acoustics are phenomenal. Yeah, that's what we always what we need. Uh, We're meeting under relatively happy circumstances. It's Oregon game week, but we get to go in in the top twenty-five in the country in the college football playoff rankings and coming off a very fun win against Oregon State. Let's start from the end and work backwards. The game ended with an 18 play 92 yard drive spanned roughly the final five minutes of the game included very exciting clutch third down conversions uh, passes to Devin Culp, Jalen Polk and Cameron Davis. The Davis one particularly diving catch in the flat to keep the drive going. It's got to be one of the emotional highlights of the year so far. Uh, Gaby, what do you think of, like, what were your just general thoughts, uh, in the way that they closed out this game? Um, well, at first I, I remember that the last, when did the, where did the last drive start on? Like around the 10 yard line, right? Yeah. Inside the 10, there back. was that great punt that just bounced straight up in the air. Yeah. And so, but it, there was something in the back of my mind though, that was like, this is such a stupid everything like this is cal this this game is is cal coded that i there's something in the back of my brain that was like you know what would be hilarious would be if they used the next six and a half minutes or however much time was on the clock to go all the way down there and win it with 10 seconds left and like did i believe it could i mean i actually did genuinely think you know like i think this actually could happen granted is it likely to no but like if you have four quarters to get used to that stupid ass weather and i feel like it, it kind of cooled down somewhat by that point uh, no, i mean cooled down the wind a little bit maybe that's, i think my that's memory right. might be a little Just, bit off it was very strange from where i was sitting the uh the big flag on you know attached to the top of the scoreboard was still whipping around but the little flags on the uh goal posts were much less whippy mm-hmm. if that's a t- to use a meteorological term yeah uh, the wind definitely died down towards the end. It, it. I was talking to one of my friends that I know who's still in the marching band, and had the misfortune of being one of the people that hold the big flag at the pregame, like national anthem mm. part, and was one of those people that actually got thrown, like, off the ground by the wind at the beginning of the game. <laughs> oh no! Quite, quite unfortunate. But it definitely did die down towards the end of the game. Um, although it got kind of cold, so. It, yeah. it definitely got cold, but it's, it, it was, it, I had the same thought as you gave you when they, they took over. It was actually even before the punt. Cause I was thinking, you know, what do you expect here? It probably start somewhere around the 20 and just mm-hmm. kind of doing the math with how much time is left on the clock. 
And I didn't think it was realistic that we would be able to to ice the game on that drive. But I thought it was realistic that we could go the length of the field and score and give them the ball back with like a minute or a minute and a half left yeah. and force them to try to tie it. So oh. I, the way it played out was awesome. Yeah. Although I will say that I kind of had that in the back of my head too, that maybe that was more likely, but that almost kind of scared me more. Cause I'm like, I, tr- I don't know how much I trust this defense, even though, you know, relatively speaking, you know, it held, it, it held Oregon state to not being very effective, um, granted that part of that was just the slow pace of play so like there wasn't that many opportunities drive wise but I I had that in the back of my head too that I, even with that I'm like I don't know if I trust our defense in a two-minute drill in a game that, that's, that's just this stupid uh, <laughs> and so I well, kind of was like I would rather them almost go three and out give the ball back and then get it back then do that or you know do what they did obviously is I do want to talk a little bit more. You were hinting at it, the kind of general defensive competence. I don't want to go so far as to say effectiveness, uh, but it's the second <laughs> week in a row that gave up 21 points. And given where this offense is, holding anybody to 21 points is going to give them a really good chance to win. Uh, ben Golbrinson had trouble passing. I mean, some of it was the win. Some of it was the putting him under pressure. Some of it are his own limitations. The Oregon State running back running game in general was definitely effective. Uh, Damian Martinez particularly was very good. Uh, we didn't force any turnovers, but we did get two fourth down stops. I, I'd just be interested, Coach, to hear your point of view on Did you see this as a good defensive performance? Was this just kind of like not catastrophic? Is there anything you can take away from this as like things have changed through the year? or Definitely leaning or towards – definitely leading towards the not catastrophic is acceptable in my opinion um i was at the game and there were so many times where there were wide receivers for oregon state running butt naked downfield (laughs) like our dbs were burnt toast yeah and and fortunately for us whether it be the conditions at the game or Goldenson's general lack of big play ability in the passing game. Um, we got lucky on a number of them. And probably those missed throws or, or lack of big throws made, you know, an easy touchdown difference over the course of the game. Um, but I think once the staff and the defense overall kind of realized, okay, this guy's misfiring on all of these deep passes if we're going to get burnt we're going to get burnt whatever let's just clamp down on the run game and anything involving the running backs and at the line of scrimmage and take our chances and that gamble kind of paid off we definitely hunkered down uh against the run game uh, after the first quarter uh there, there still were a number of kind of demoralizing big runs like quote-unquote big runs, you know, first down run right up the middle, right where we're expecting to get five yards. But then after that, once they tried to, you know, keep things reasonably balanced with the passing game, all those misfires added up, and and we ended up looking not too bad on the box score at the end of the game. I I noticed that exact same thing that that you were just talking about. I wasn't at the game, but similar stuff where where you see see a receiver who's very – much 
open and just th- having that moment of holding your breath going, please, God, no, please, God, no, please, God, no. So <laughs> I, I definitely, I was thinking the exact same thing that I think, yeah, with a, with a, you know, most better quarterback that this game could have gone less pleasantly. <laughs> but um, yeah, I like that you mentioned that. And it's it, the one that really stood out was the throw down the right sideline to Anthony Gold. Uh, I think it was in the third quarter where he got behind Perryman and it was completely all alone. He would have walked into the end zone, but this is the one where the, the wind really did play a factor. It, it almost looked more like a pop fly in a baseball game where the guy's just like, he thinks he's under it and he's drifting and he's drifting and he's drifting. And suddenly the ball lands like 25 yards further into the field than yeah. where it was intended to be thrown. <laughs> yep. And you can't put that yep. all on the quarterback <laughs> or else it was just like the worst deep ball I've ever seen. <laughs> But interesting, (laughs) interestingly, you know, we talked about this last week. If this if the weather was a huge factor, we we kind of hearkened back to some older games, um, particularly the Arizona game from 2013. We talked about the crazy uh, run pass uh, skew that we had the Huskies had in that game and how Arizona basically lost the game because they continued trying to pass the ball in this one. The Huskies did continue to pass the ball. Uh, There weren't a lot of deep passes. Uh, which probably had a lot to do with the weather, but the moving sideline to sideline and moving the ball around, Michael Penix threw the ball 52 times. It's This is definitely a, a you know gutsy approach to say like, weather be damned, we're putting this in our best player's hands. What did you think of that? Like, did it scare you at all? Was there ever a point where you were kind of wishing, like, looks like the running game hasn't been too bad. Maybe we should lean into that a little bit more big picture for me at least was I pretty quickly lost confidence in our ability to run the ball pretty early in the game. I mean, granted there were a number of good plays throughout by a number of ball carriers, but we just didn't look like we were getting a ton of movement on the line, uh, especially in contrast to Oregon state's offensive line where they were repeatedly and consistently resetting the line of scrimmage and running backs for three yards downfield before anybody was mm-hmm. even close to making contact. We just weren't clicking like that in the run game. So I kind of figured, okay, this is going to be one of those games where Grubb's going to lean into what he's done all season and just keep calling passes. And that kind of did worry me because, I mean, gut reaction, I didn't check any advanced stats or anything like that, but it felt like we had at least a half dozen drops or incomplete passes that were put on the receiver and definitely had a chance of coming down with it. And that's very atypical for our receiving core. We've been very good all season in securing the ball. And it just seemed a little bit off for a long stretch of the game. Fortunately, everything came together down the stretch at the very end, but we couldn't get anything to really take, you know, we couldn't get anything going in the run game to take pressure off of Penix throwing the ball a ton. And when he was forced to keep passing, it just didn't look quite right. There, it wasn't, there weren't as many of those like wide open plays where Roma Dunsey is running a 12 yard out on the far side of the field and just is wide open or something like that for the easy first down. I mean, granted, there were a number of those plays, but it wasn't as consistent as we've seen in the past several games. 
or throughout the whole season. And there just always seem to be guys right on the spot, right when the ball is getting there. And um, I mean, credit to the, the Oregon state secondary. I mean, going into it, having done my defensive preview last week, I kind of knew that they had some pretty good players and pretty good talent. They've been playing at a high level. Uh, I think at one point they were in the top 10 for passes defended uh, as a secondary, you know, so that's pretty good. But a lot of what happened kind of made me uneasy for far too long throughout the game. Yeah, it it definitely seemed like it was difficult to kind of find an identity for the game and just pick out one thing that was going to work and do it over and over. And instead, we got kind of timely, effective uh, plays at, at just the right moments. Uh, Gaby, were you, how nervous were you? I, or, I mean, I guess initially surprised might be a better word at the what looked to me anyway, like Michael Penix's worst pass of the season so far on the pick six. And then, you know, the 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 willingness to continue kind of just letting him run the game from that point forward. Um, I think th- so. this is going to be a little bit of a throwback and a cross sport throwback as far as my answer, but not really that much. I think that he's shown throughout the season for my estimation anyway, to be somebody who I, I think that like short memory thing, I think it's a cliche, but it's, there is part of it that, that is very much true. And I think, he's shown himself to be somebody who is that kind of has that quality. And I think mostly because that comes from a, a place of really having that confidence because you really do understand what it is you're doing. Like, I think that kind of not having that short memory and, and kind of letting those sort of mistakes spiral. I feel like in, in my experience, just not even just a football thing, but in general, that tends to be, often tends to originate in kind of having that panic mode and like when a player really does understand their assignment and then when they really are that confident like you know whatever that kind of means nothing in the grand scheme of things and it it, this is gonna sound maybe like a weird metaphor at first but it kind of reminded me of the UW Michigan softball game in 2021 Mm -hmm. in the the uh, regionals when it was like Gabby Plain ended up throwing 230 pitches in six hours or something psychotic because and the, the reason being where she ended up having that I think it was like second inning of giving up five runs and everyone thinking I remember I don't know if you guys or whoever's listening to this uh were was on like it was on Twitter at the time but like Twitter was pretty much going like oh man like I, I remember seeing someone say that like oh Gabby's great but she's not Daniel Laurie like she can't do this uh, no one, no, because no one can do this if they're not Danielle, uh, friend of the pod. Um, but, and, and then, and then the third inning happening and, and her, and her coming out to the circle again. And I remember people seeing people being like, what the hell? Like, she's like, we can't, like, she's obviously done. Like she can't. And I think that's kind of when you have, and I think that's indicative of a relationship that, you know, a coach and a player, but like coach, you know, coach Tar knowing her, and knowing that actually she can do that, this <laughs> like psycho, like unhinged feat of mental and physical strength and stamina. And I think it's kind of similar, obviously not that level of insanity, but kind of a similar relationship between uh, Grub and DeBoer and, um, and Penix. Just, just not, you know, just as far as Penix having that 
ability and that confidence and that kind of mental mental maturity and then also the coaches knowing that he does and knowing that they don't have to hold him back just because he made you know one bad throw which granted was a very very consequential bad throw um and I don't know I think I think when you have when you have teams and organizations that are running really um I don't want to say I for lack of better words running smoothly in as far as you know them being an organism where everybody kind of understands and gets each other I think that's things like this that I mean these are qualities and instances that you can make happen in the in in an organization where things are running well and uh, coaches and players and all that especially the most important players and the most important coaches you know be that the quarterback who's touching it pretty touching the ball pretty much every snap so I, I think to me that that was kind of in what that was indicative of. And because we've gotten over the course of the season, this evidence that, you know, Michael Penix is this, is that guy, like he, 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 he is who he is. And he's very good at, at, at pretty much everything. He, he's good at what he does. He's knows he's good at what he does. He knows exactly what he needs to do. So what is one mistake? So, yeah, I think that was a very long way of saying <laughs> saying my answer, but um I think I think certain things like that can be kind of complicated at least on the on the surface. So, yeah. No, I I hear you. I I think the analogy to Gabby Plane makes sense. Like it's like just because something just ha- something bad just happened doesn't mean this isn't our best option going forward. Mm-hmm. And some of that is knowing what the rest of your team looks like, but some of it is also the psychological makeup of the people involved. Yeah. And it's very easy for us to like armchair psychologist athletes. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. It's actually fairly reasonable for coaches to do it because they know them a lot better. And and particularly in this case, DeBoer goes back several years with Michael Penix, at least, you know, with an interregnum in between that. But uh, it, there's, I, I think he probably knows that Penix is capable of overcoming that mentally. Uh, the one other thing I wanted to talk about in this game, the lights went out for about 30 minutes, uh, and it seemed like the stadiums, op- stadium operations chose to pass the time by playing Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus, which has become kind of an anthem at Husky home games this year. Uh, it, I don't remember it in past years. It might have happened now and again, but this year it's become like an every game staple. Can somebody uh, who's younger than me, I guess, or uh, less contemptuous of popular culture, uh, explain how and why this became a thing at Husky Stadium? I mean, I'm just opening it up the floor to everybody else. (laughs) I love Miley, but I couldn't tell you why this has become a thing. (laughs) Coach, do you have any? I have absolutely no idea. And I have season tickets for years now. And <laughs> at first, I think I think it did start this season, if I'm not mistaken. It was jarring to see how <laughs> into it some people were. And I mean, you know, it's worn me down over the games that are over the year. And I'm just like, I mean, sure. I like I like the energy. I like the vibes, you know, but really, guys, <laughs> we're we're in Seattle. We have so many well, other right. great yeah. local artists to like, you know, hype up the crowd with. But granted, you know, I'm I'm into some of the older music, and you know, I can get down to Nirvana or something. Ah, 
I don't know if I'd connect as well with like maybe the student section that really likes it or something like that. <laughs> I, but I mean, I mean, I guess like, I, I think of it as being like being in my undergrad years were like the time when my music tastes were kind of forming, like not just starting, but kind of like in what would become my longer term interests. And so this is a song that probably came out 15 years ago or something. I don't uh, know. It was 2000. Uh, seven, and I know that because okay. my softball, my 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 softball team. I think it was the first like school bus ride, like school softball team, where we that I like. I took a trip to an away game on, and and, and one of the older girls on the team like played played party in the USA, and I think that was like the first time I heard it. <laughs> I think you're right, though that. I mean that that means that the average undergrad was between like age three and six when the song came out. So like, there it's <laughs> like that. I, I guess it's not. I don't know. I don't understand it. I spent. It makes me feel really dumb because I spent all summer complaining about the Mariners switching from Louie Louie to Macklemore, Which... and now I'm like, my God, would I much prefer to have them playing Macklemore in the fourth quarter? Well, did we did we did did, did 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 you? I don't know if you told me about this or I learned it from somebody else. But apparently, the reason why the Mariners switched, and I, if everybody knows this, and I just think it's a fun factoid, then feel free to tell me I'm an idiot, uh, who's behind the times. But apparently, it was a rights issue where like the rights to Louis Louis ran out, and then they were like, "Fuck, okay, who can we get?" I know, <laughs> and and so they were like, I don't know if they're like trying to figure out how to get Louis Louis again, but mm. anyways, interesting. Uh, I didn't know that part. Know, I don't even unless, know how that's, unless I'm wrong. It can't I'm be that expensive spreading. to license a sixty-year-old song, dude. Shit's uh, weird, man. <laughs> I don't think that the, the Kingsmen are are that virtuous about the usage. No, no, of their but music. it's like owned by fair enough. Uh, whatever major like media how, conglomerate. Yeah. XYZ, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's owned I, by, I, you I, know, I, it's owned by Disney or whatever because they own, it's like, it's I really owned by Disney or Nestle or Steinhardt Wing Company. Comcast. <laughs> I, I, I was so, so disappointed in uh, the, the game three of the playoff series with Houston that they didn't play Louie Louie in the bottom of the 14th inning. Like so consequences be damned. Does it, I mean, I at know, that that's point, true. Like, they should have just taken it and gotten sued we'll, and we'll been just, like, fuck y'all. Okay, I, I right, think that, that that settles it on the Oregon State game. I mean, I I, I was looking at the uh, Bill Conley's Sports Info Solution advanced box score, and just as the coda to this conversation, I thought he summed it up very well in two sentences. Oregon State won efficiency and field position, got a pick six, could have been up about twenty one and a half. Did your missed opportunity? Also, well done to UW for rallying. I, I mean, we spent half an hour on it. That's a, a very good summary by the always. Uh, very accurate bill conley so let's leave it at that and we'll take a quick break and we will come back and we will talk about the oregon game coming up this weekend welcome back thanks for sticking with us we're going to talk a little bit about washington traveling down i-5 going all the way to eugene probably having another crappy weather weekend this is a weird game with two teams that are kind of mirror images of each other both teams are in the top five nationally in offensive expected points added and outside the top 110 defensively in the same stat. One major difference between them so far is that Oregon has been really effective at running the ball. They have a, a rotation of running backs, Bucky Irvin, uh, Noah Whittington, Sean Dollars, and then also Bo Nix certainly has some ability to move around. 
UW has just been okay in the run game, as we talked about a bit earlier in the podcast. Coach, I'd love to get your perspective on what has made this Oregon offense under Kenny Dillingham so incredibly effective uh, with the combination of Dillingham and Knicks coming into a program that has been good offensively for a long time, but this year has really kind of taken it to another level. I, I think it's it's the addition of Knicks as more of a passer that's balanced everything out, right? It's, uh, I don't even remember, it was Anthony Brown or something like that was their quarterback last year. He, he's done well for himself. I think he had a little bit of a run in the NFL with the Ravens, if I want to, if I'm remembering really? that correctly. All right, I'm something like that. Miss, he at least got that... some. I think we might be mixing years, but I think you're on the right track. <laughs> Continue talking. Sure. I will. Look Anyways, but, but um, the offenses that they ran with him were much more option heavy, QB run game heavy. And while Nix has done some things with his legs, it's his ability when it's clicking to actually get the ball out on time and really expand some of those things. It's, he's not just running around looking for his first read to somehow get open. And uh, he's he's clicking more with, with a more conventional passing attack. And that opens everything else up. And, and of course, you know, I had high confidence coming into the season that their offensive line would look good. They'd be able to run the ball regardless of how, you know, Bo Nix turned out uh, while he was there. I mean, I had uh, memories seared into my brain of the Jekyll and Hyde, you know, dual personalities and performances of Bo Nix uh, when he was at Auburn. And I, so far, you know, I think he's definitely playing towards his ceiling lately. And and some of the the advances in their passing game have come from their talented receivers maturing, you know, everybody's favorite recruiting myth, Troy Franklin seems to be, <laughs> you know, carrying the load there. Um, if only, you know, we could get him to transfer up. Uh, but, but nonetheless, um, you know, it's, it's kind of the same blueprint that we've seen over and over again with these uh, Oregon teams over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years where their identity is going to be running the football with, a bunch of talented backs and when their pass game figures it out, they're explosive offense. And truth be told, I'm not entirely sure what the game plan should be to stop this, uh, this offense. Um, kind of just looking at what we've seen with, you know, past couple games where our run defense is okay, I guess. Um <laughs> Question mark. Enthusiastic I like that the ellipses and the question mark <laughs> after that. <laughs> De- definitely some upward inflection on that one. Um, and if we know we're just going to get toast in the passing game, or if that's what we're just going to give up, then so be it. Let's at least force them to be one-dimensional somehow. And I guess if it were on me, yeah. I mean, if you think that you can commit bodies to the line of scrimmage and – you know, bringing the safeties into the into the run defense and slow down or stop their run game, definitely go with that. I would much rather put the game on Bo Nix to beat us than them just hammering away at our defensive front, you know, for seven yards of carry and, you know, just suck the soul out of our defense. 
Yeah, that would be a problem. I, although you look at the stats that Nix has put together this year and it, it jumps off the page compared to what he's done in the past. He had three years at Auburn as a full-time player. Completion percentage was always between 58 and 61%. Yards per attempt was always between 6.7 and 7.1. Uh, wasn't a high turnover guy. He got sacked a fair amount, but uh, definitely made some mistakes and had fairly low completion percentages. And then this year, he's jumped up to 73% completion percentage, which is elite, and 9.1 yards per attempt, which is also outstanding. Uh, among the best in the country in both those categories. Gaby, what do you think is, we talked earlier this year about how just because he hasn't morphed into bad Bo Nicks yet this year doesn't mean it's not still there. <laughs> what what do you think it would take defensively to bring that out? Like, what, is it kind of what coach was saying? Like, just load up against the run and force him to beat you or or more pressure on him? Or is that like, do you, what would you, how would you approach the problem that is Bo? Yeah, I mean, I think I think part of it is just like it's not. I mean, for all but the most uh, in denial people, like it's not controversial to say that like the demographics of SEC country, like they they produce more defensive linemen that are like you know physically and and talent wise are just we don't have that like the the population density of of that type of person, which is like an extremely rare kind of guy you know so when you're looking at like the competition that this this isn't me saying like Oregon ain't played nobody because obviously you know you have to <laughs> apply that across every school west of the Mississippi or mess west of like Houston um but but I think when you look at like a lot of his issues you know for his what three years at Auburn a lot of it was kind of that panic brain, which naturally comes about when you're under pressure and not only under pressure, but like under sustained pressure. And, and I think that is, you know, I, I don't, I get, I don't think it's controversial to say that there just aren't as many teams in the PAC 12 that can generate that sustained pressure, which makes sense. You know, we have a lot more spread out geographically. Our populations are more spread out geographically. Our schools are more spread out geographically. We just have less defensive linemen type, guys whether that's you know defensive interior um you know not so much the edge like we can we can get more edge guys out here but you have less people less wealth to go around essentially and so so i i do tend to think you know i think washington's pass rush is probably one of the better ones in conference that he'll face this year but it's you know you can't do that alone in our secondary is not <laughs> one of the better so it's kind of like I think if our even if our secondary was just kind of uh I don't want to shit on them too hard but you know it's been a rough year and uh they'd admit it um I think if they were even just kind of average ish like I I would I would think that maybe at, at that point that you know the guys up front could do their part to you know get a get a sighting of of, of bad bow um but but I mean that's just such a you have to have those two working in tandem and um you know it's not impossible but I do for it's 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 funny because I have this these two parts of my brain where I'm like I can on all else held constant I could see our defensive line doing quite well against him but then all else held constant I really can't see our secondary doing well at all. 
<laughs> and so, and I think that kind of tends to win out, um, especially because, you know, if he's getting the ball out quickly, then that that's it pretty much yeah it's it's not hard to imagine troy franklin just like sprinting past jordan perryman and perryman (laughs) you know i i i don't mean to make this a a mean thing but every time he gets burned it seems like he comes up grabbing his hamstring and maybe his hamstring's legitimately injured and it's not fair to point that out but it it seems to happen quite often when someone just runs right by him mm-hmm. um and then yeah chad coda is probably going to catch like nine four yard passes and and turn all of them Wait, into 11 you mean, yard mean chase coda chase coda <laughs> i like chad, chad coda coda. he does look like a guy who would be named chad chad i feel like there was a, a chad coda it's like a baseball utility infielder well, once his, upon a time. his chase coda's dad uh, dad played at oregon like in the okay that's probably where i'm getting the name or whatever anyway uh, maybe, maybe there's chat i don't one, know one quick uh, thing to add on the great point that I was just thinking about, I was looking up here um, about bad bow and like how all of a sudden this year at Oregon, he's taking this huge step forward is kind of relating to the amount of pressure that he's seeing relative to his years in the sec. And it's kind of interesting. I, I remember this stat that I just looked up where both Bo Nix and Michael Penix, both are having career years, first time in the Pac-12, playing behind two offensive lines that are in the top five nationally in fewest pressures given up. Hmm. Yeah. So, tremendous pass protection, right? And so I think for both of them, it's kind of interesting where we're seeing them finally reach their like ceilings as passers because they just have so much time to work with and yeah. can just torch Pac-12 defenses. Yeah, that's a yeah. really good point. I didn't think about making that connection between Michael Penix with Michael Penix, but they really are. They, I mean, when you look at their career arcs, it really is so similar as far as like finally when you get guys who are you know both very talented passers, um, and it seems like both uh, like obviously Penix has shown himself to be very smart, you know, as as far as reading defenses and, and processing everything, and it seems to me like Bo's pretty good at that too for the most part. Uh, that when when you give them just a little bit of <laughs> of stuff to work with and, and instead of making them be constantly running for their lives just like the <laughs> like yeah i never thought about how much they mirror each other that's a good point uh, they even share um once again playing for their 2019 offensive coordinator again uh oh, hey, but wait. yes for you, it, I did look it up. Chase Coda's dad was Chad Coda. And Chad Coda, yeah, that's that name is deep in my brain. Yeah, it came out right around the same time as Party in the USA. But let's you alluded to the fact that not just UW and not just Oregon, but a lot of the West Coast schools are kind of weaker defensively relative to their offense, and probably has something to do with the population demographics. Very yeah. true. Well, and I also think specifically up front, like you can yeah. get you can get linebackers and, and defensive backs out here that are as good as anyone. You know, and Sorry. this is a this is a theme in the conference this year. All the you know the top four teams are Oregon, UCLA, USC, and Utah. And even though I think we're probably a little slower to accept that Utah's defense isn't as good this year. Statistically, all four of those teams are much better offensively than defensively. Mm-hmm. And UW is now in fifth in the conference. Um, obviously a similar trait there. And you have to go all the way down to Oregon State before you find a team that kind of thrives defensively on its way to being respectable. Uh, mm-hmm. But to that end, you know, if you flip this game around and look at where UW will attack, 
Oregon's defense. It's it's a lot easier to pick your poison than it is when we're looking at how to game plan against a very deep and talented offense. And it seems to me that Oregon, from what I've seen, prefers to sell out for big plays. They have 14 forced turnovers already this year. They have a lot of passes defense. They have a lot of sacks and tackles for loss. For an offensive line that has done a really good job keeping Michael Penix upright, uh, Coach, I'd love to hear your perspective. What did, what do you think would be the right way to attack this defense to make the most of Oregon's own defensive weaknesses? You know, if we have to make this a 56 to 54 game or something, what's the way to do that, like, from start to finish? Yeah, so first off, I have very little faith yet again that we're going to be able to run the ball well. But that being said, I do think that a big key to this game will be us getting the quick passing game going, right? I mean, I think yeah, given the way that they try to sell out and get big plays, which in a perfect world is kind of what our defensive staff is trying to do as well, really get up in our face, bring pressure from all different angles. Um, and this is something that Georgia did as well that Lanning brought up to Oregon is not necessarily trying to just overwhelm with numbers, but saw a mix of maybe five-man blitzes, blitzes coming from different angles, zone blitzes, mixing it all up, and just doing everything in the playbook to create pressure, where if we can get the quick game going, especially um, one thing that I noticed is is if we can get one of our better pass-catching running backs, say Tam Davis, if we had a Will Nixon type, if we had Sam Adams show up or something like that, um, maybe even win, I don't know, if you know, maybe if he can figure out how to catch the ball more consistently, sure. But getting them matched up on Noah Sewell and taking advantage of those opportunities will be huge for the overall efficiency of the offense. Um, or maybe a tight end too, getting Devin Culp mixed in there or Jack Westover because Sewell reminds me a lot of uh, back in the day. I don't know if he's still in the NFL. Uh, Dante Hightower for yeah. the Patriots. He was a, yeah. he was a Bama uh, linebacker as well, where kind of also similar to, to Eddie uh, Ulufoshio, where great in pass rush, good in in the the run defense but an absolute liability if you put them in one-on-one coverage in space right yeah. and i think um max sent me over some of the pff grades for oregon's defense and that is the one glaring weakness in his game and i think that if we can figure out a way where we scheme up a formation or do some motion or something like that, where we can get one of our guys, one of our better athletes in a catch and run situation against him over the middle, that would be huge. And and we kind of did a little bit of that um, against Oregon state where we got Devin Culp out on this little leak route over the, over the middle, you know, kind of, one second pass protection or blocking of some sort leak out and then just dump right over the middle uh, in a one-on-one situation with uh, a flat-footed linebacker. Something like that might be effective. Or uh, we saw it as well on uh, Cam Davis's uh, big third down catch. I I was just going to say that, yeah. Yeah, something like that where we get 
one of these running backs or tight ends or somebody that might be caught in man coverage against a linebacker like Sewell, get them in motion, get them out in space, and then just try to see what we can get there and get them rolling. Because I think, you know, it's pretty obvious we have good receivers that they're going to identify in their game plan as like, don't let Rome get wide open. Got yeah. a double cover Jalen over the middle when he's in the slot or something like that, right? And I think, you know, they have some pretty good defensive backs on their end, especially that guy, um, Gonzalez. I think he was a transfer from Colorado um, who's, you know, done really well for himself this year for Oregon. Um, those yeah, are the obvious things. Three interceptions already, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, those are the obvious guys that they're going to try and, and – uh, cover with their best players or with some scheme help or something like that. It's going to come down to like the secondary guys, the secondary uh, mm-hmm. options in the receiving game. Uh, especially if we can't get the run going, you know, we got to lean on that a little bit and, and get a little bit more creative. And I, you know, um, based on their time in Fresno, Grubb and DeBoer love getting the the run game, the running backs involved in the pass game rather. Uh, especially on that sort of wheel route kind of concept um, like we saw with Cam Davis last week. So, you know, that might be something to take a look at. But, of course, you know, every week I write the defensive preview for our opponent. And uh, they're like, oh, here's here's the keys to the game. Maybe our offense are going to try these. And more often than not, I am just plain wrong. So <laughs> take all that with a grain of salt. Well, I do before – yeah, before we move on, I do like that you mentioned – specifically the running backs and also um how they match up against Noah Sewell because I was and I I was thinking about that Cam Davis if 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 I'm remembering correctly anyway that one Cam Davis catch as well because uh, first off um that I've noticed also that yeah a, a linebacker like Sewell I feel like he really embodies this where he's so aggressive as far as I, I I think he's a pretty smart linebacker and and he's incredibly talented but he's also you know, he wants to be coming downhill. And so I feel like you can manipulate his angles quite readily with motion in the backfield and wheel routes. And because he wants to come up, I, I, I this is not an uncommon trait in a lot of linebackers, but you'll see them come up and take far too sharp an angle. And then not only are they meeting the running back, you know, who now is developing into a route, into a wheel route at a very poor place, but they're also just in a really awkward position to then readjust their angle and carry with him. And then you, so you have that already at a disadvantage. And then you have the fact that already in this position, in this scenario, one of these is a better athlete for this setup and it's not the linebacker. <laughs> and I feel like Sewell's very much kind of in that mold of guy. But I also like that you bring up that Cam Davis uh, catch, because if I'm thinking of the same one, I, I was watching I was watching this game after my own hockey game actually from the the Kraken bar at their at their uh practice plays and I saw him go in motion and immediately before the snap I'm like they're throwing it to him and we're good like we're going to convert this third down <laughs> just knowing yep. how much Penix how he processes defenses so well pre-snap and knowing how this offense is built to identify those weaknesses and knowing what a mismatch that 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 is that they're creating right there and I, I think to the point, I was so confident in that, that I was like sitting with a couple of my teammates and some gals from the team we had just played. And I pointed at the screen. I was like, they're going to him and we're going to convert. 
<laughs> no, exactly. I had the same exact thought in person. Yeah. I was like, motion to Cam. They're gonna. That's that's the first read. Oh, nobody, nobody's moving with him. Uh, I know yeah. exactly what's going here. Yeah, and, and like unless he drops it, we're converting right here. And he yeah. very it was very close to it, yeah. but yeah, yeah, play sounds... nonetheless. I'll give him credit for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, continue. So, yes, before so I think that's we've we've more or less worked our way through the permutations of the Oregon Washington matchup. So this is on the road. It's a tough matchup. Probably on both sides of the ball, Oregon has some advantages. It's going to be a tough hill to climb. But I'd like to hear if either of you can muster it. What is a realistic scenario or a script for this game where UW could actually win? Like what what kind of game could uh, happen that UW that would get UW over the finish line. Um, Gabby, I'll, I'll ask you first. Mm, you know, I haven't thought too much about this because I just kind of want to enjoy it as it goes because my gut is like Washington's gonna lose <laughs> just because I don't think, I don't think, um, I, I don't think our front four can apply constant, it constant enough pressure within the time constraints that they're going to have to get home to Bonix, given that our, our secondary or our outside corners at least aren't super great at covering for long enough periods of time um, uh, to give, you know, to give the defensive line some, some leeway. Um, so I've kind of just had that in the back of my mind so that going into the game emotionally, it's just house money <laughs> if we do uh, a win but I mean, yeah, I think I think the one way that I could see is yeah, if you get I, I agree with, with with coach that that a using the running backs in the passing game to create mismatches and then also kind of getting the ball up pretty quickly um, uh, is more or less hopefully I, I would guess that's kind of the the backbone of the offensive approach um, on Saturday. And I, I I guess I could see if UW can if UW can initially hold Oregon to you know maybe a couple field goals maybe maybe uh or or you know or going you know having to punt just once or twice initially then I could see Bo Nix getting in his head a little bit if you can combine that with just enough sustain pressure up front um be, but you can't you it, it feel like it has to be again it has to be sustained because if it's just every once in a while uh or you no know, off and on kind of pressure both mentally and physically then then i feel like you know that's that then that doesn't get people who are that doesn't that doesn't create that panic mode you know it's just like oh this is just a one-off um, but if you can have that as a pattern over and over then I could see that being, I think, I think that I, I'm not saying if they do that, they will win, but I think that is necessary for them to win. Fair enough. Yeah. How about you coach? Anything else that KB didn't, didn't throw in there that you think would be a hallmark of a game that might lead to Washington actually coming out on top? I think, uh, so like, I, I agree with everything she just said. I, I think big picture, we're going to have to go, it's either Grub finds some, or Grub and the defensive staff on the other side of the ball find some sort of kryptonite flaw in their scheme or something like that. Or we're going to have to go to the extremes of our tendencies a little bit. 
and just try to throw them off. So like on the offensive side, like, like we've talked about earlier, they like to go for the big plays. They like to go real heavy on the simulated pressure and bringing from all different angles. So, you know, maybe we'll see a little bit more max protection, take the shot, right. Trying to generate some of those big plays. And then on the flip side, you know, mix that in with a lot of wide open looks. We've done a lot of empty sets, you know, throughout the season and try to just force them to tip their hand a little bit Um, with the max protection. You know, if we have seven guys blocking, you know, unless they're going super aggressive or something like that, um, we, we should be able to hold up in pass protection, give our receivers, you know, probably the strongest position on our team, um, the time to work their routes, you know, even if it's just two receivers out there or something like that, like I'd, I'd put money on Rome and Jalen or Polk or whomever if you give them three seconds, four seconds to get open, I'd, I'd, you know, be confident in that matchup if they find themselves in a one, one-on-one situation right there. Um, and with, you know, li- little risk, relatively speaking of pressure actually developing. Right. Um, on, on the other side of the ball on defense, I, I totally agree with, uh, Gaby in that it has to be sustained pressure if we're going to actually get to Bo Nix um, or force him into making a poor decision or something like that. Uh, I kind of think back to how Washington State played Oregon very close earlier this season, and a large part of that was because they caught the Oregon offense going back to the well a few too many times. Um, there was that big, I want I can't remember if it was a pick six or something, some sort of big interception play where Oregon called the same play on back-to-back um, plays. They had the same call on back-to-back plays and getting our team ready for their tendencies to be able to take advantage of when they try to pass twice in a row on the same concept. Got to do something there and just, get that big momentum play there, right? Um, selling out on the run, slowing down the run game and forcing Bo into more of those situations where, you know, if, if they can just hand the ball off the entire time and then take very selective shots in the passing game, we're not going to win that way or, or slow down their offense that way. It's probability, you know, you get more chances at getting bad Bo if, if we force him to pass uh, and then, trying to mix it up there go real heavy pressure one play drop tons of guys you know drop eight into coverage the next play just get them confused force them to pass something like that yeah yeah i like that outcome and i think it is going to take kind of a heroic offensive outing from michael Penix, at least and probably some others uh, for to, to be able to outscore Oregon, this isn't going to be another 21 point game even if everything clicks it would be nice to you know for once as it doesn't seem like we have had too many times this year come out decidedly on the positive side of the turnover battle so if little things like that can come through it could make a big difference in the game so I, I I'd love to hear either of you if you're willing to make a prediction. Maybe just the, the line right now is at Oregon by 13 and a half. Tell me, you know, one of three options: Oregon wins by two touchdowns or more. Oregon wins by less than that, or UW pulls it out. Uh, Gabe, you can go first. I'll go Oregon 35, UW 31. 
Oh, that's pretty optimistic, oh, I would no, say. No, no, no. Uh, wait, wait. Uh, sorry, doing some more math. Oregon 34, UW 31. Yeah. I think I think Oregon probably wins, but I don't think they – I mean, that's a massive line. <laughs> I think it opened at 10 or 10 and a half, and it's already moved significantly. And following the betting trends this year, um, that's a bad sign for us. Lines that have moved significantly, <laughs> like the more a line moves in one team's favor, the better they have done against the spread uh, yeah. through the year. Um, so, yeah. Or if the line keeps going in Oregon's favor, that is a pretty strong indicator that – the betters are on to something coach oh, do you have oh, a as far a, as there being some intel that like so it may not even be intel whatever. it may just be public sentiment uh well, well sure yeah coalescing uh, away from where the sports book wanted the action to go yeah yeah i um no i i yeah i'd, I'd say Oregon 34 uw 31 give or take yeah uh i know that's not fun sorry <laughs> <laughs> but also I, the times when we the our two losses were came when i was like no 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 we got this and then the net the cal game cal game was that the next one no arizona arizona was the next one where we broke that two game little up cdaz losing streak and i and i officially sacrificed my prediction my prediction record on our <laughs> site because i was like no 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 if i predict us to lose i i we will win and lo and behold and then i did it again for cal no i didn't do it again for cal i think i thought the curse was broken the point being by saying we're gonna lose if we win you're fucking welcome (laughs) uh i'm gonna go somewhat similar i'm gonna say 41 31 oregon yeah i Uh, I think we'll cover i think we'll cover I think the over-under is at like 72 and a half or something like that. Um, and and it kind of, you know, 41, let's see. That's what, five touchdowns and two field goals for Oregon? Which feels plausible. They, they, they'll they probably have seven possessions that they score, but maybe I'm not. having to do way more math right points. now than I want to do. Yeah, yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> But I, I, yeah. think, I, I think we'll we'll score points against an aggressive defense that may be susceptible to our scheme, you know, giving up a few points. I just have very little confidence in our defense to really stop them. Yeah. I think it's gonna be a shootout. I, but I agree. That being said, it's it's a pretty high over under line right now. So It'll be tough to hit the over, but we'll come in right around it. all that. So yeah, 41, I, I, 31 feels about right. I'm probably going to agree with something in the 40s to something in the 30s. And I, I could see it getting stretched out to something like 45, 31, which would be an Oregon cover. But um, those are fine lines. And I'll, I'll hammer that out later in the week and give a, our actual picks when we do that. But I think we're all kind of on the same page that Oregon's probably the favorite. It's probably by something like a touchdown to a touchdown and a half. So let's move on and get into our recommendations and plugs section. Uh, anybody want to volunteer to go first, or if you have, um, as is custom forgotten about this section of the podcast, I can, okay, I'm going to let Gaby go. It seems like she has, has uh, remembered to recommend something. 
I remembered. I would like to be. Con- I would moment. like to be praised for remembering. You're, you are. Yes, and the reason I remember. Glory be unto you. Yes. Well, that's good because this is related to Catholics. Um, <laughs> it, it's actually something that I have recommended before, but with new, uh, new information, new betting line intel, if you will. Um, and that is that uh, I think about a year ago or so, I recommended Dairy Girls. And recently, a couple weeks ago, the third and final season came out on Netflix in the US. It's been out in uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland, the UK for um, like five or six months now. But it just came out in the US and Canada. And it's so good. Oh, it's like it's it it it, it is pretty much like uh i mean i know I, i'm sure most people a lot of people on here are, are familiar with it in general like the premise but it's kind of like if the in-betweeners were girls and it was the 90s but also just the the with the added like political and um historical uh sectarian um element um i mean i don't think anything could make the troubles be so funny <laughs> um and just it, it but like yeah the so the third the third season is if, if i suppose i should introduce the concept because I, i'm sure there's plenty of people who don't know what this is pretty much it's uh four uh high school age girls in northern ireland in the 90s uh near the end of the troubles uh, which if you don't know what those are you should be more literate in history (laughs) and english imperialism which is fun just kidding it's not um but so the the um end of season two um the end of season one is and it ends with the the omog bombing which was i think the deadliest incident in the 90s like after the the most of the the worst of the troubles was uh as far as bloodshed was the 70s and 80s um so the end of season one is with that. And then the end of season two, uh, if you don't want spoilers, shut your ears off right now. But this has been out for years, um, is when the IRA declared declared a ceasefire. Um, and the end of season three, I don't think I'm spoiling anything because this is it's relatively predictable history, history-wise, is um, the Good Friday Agreement, uh, which is which ended the troubles and allowed Northern Ireland to pretty much move into a new era of their history um and it's it's so fucking funny and also yes i cried (laughs) at the end like it's it's just um yeah it's just honestly one of the more perfect pieces of tv i've seen in a really long time um and also my halloween costume was uh every friend group on tv needs to have a stupid one and my Halloween costume was the stupid one, <laughs> who you will cl- quickly identify if you haven't uh, watched it already. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm gonna go with that. You'll laugh, you'll cry. In the words of Paul, in the words of Paul F. Tompkins, you'll laugh, you'll cry. You just might learn something. <laughs> question mark. And I think anything that makes you do all of those is worth it. So, oh, it's Excellent. four girls and a boy. I forgot to forgot to give james the wee english fella his credit those are the five main characters and there's a nun who does judo so honestly that's an elite cast 
Good stuff. Coach, anything you want to add? Uh, how do I follow that one, really? You can't. Uh, especially right, when, uh, especially unlike Gaby, I indeed forgot yet again to prepare something. <laughs> Usually I do forget. So, like, that's why I was so excited to not every, – every once in a while I won't forget, and that's when I get really into it and give a five-minute monologue. See, and- – like you said, everybody has a stupid. Every you know, show has a stupid one. I'm the forgetful one on this one. Never remembered to come up with something interesting for this recommendation. So, I'll kick it back to you, Andrew. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> All right, I I have something that I enjoyed. Uh, two things. I went I went to uh, the the Banshees of Inisherin over the weekend, which was wonderful movies first time i've gone to a movie theater in a long time it's going new, very irish uh yeah it is very irish um i that wasn't what i was going to recommend though but i i would recommend that the thing i would recommend i've been reading this every year there's an anthology called the best sports writing of the previous year and every year there's a different editor and i i try to read it every year and it's usually highly enjoyable and there's something great that comes out of it and my favorite one that i've read so far is an essay called badwater ultra marathon by Kalane Konochan, Konochan. I don't know how to say your name, but I can um, paste it into our post if it's useful to anyone. Uh, it's freely available online if you Google it. And it's about this woman who does a 135-mile ultramarathon through Death Valley that includes summiting three mountains that are all over 5,000 feet tall. Uh, and it's, it's I don't know how she did this, but it feels like a running diary, but it's written in this very like sarcastic uh, and, and kind of irreverent style actually vaguely reminded me a little bit of uh, the way you write Gaby. Uh, oh so maybe worth <laughs> reading. It, it made me laugh a few times, but it was also very like heartfelt. And did you laugh and cry uh, and learn something. I didn't learn anything. Oh. I didn't cry and I didn't yes. laugh. No, I did all of those things, <laughs> I hated it. Uh, but it was, it was very enjoyable. And uh, it, it somehow like turned this disgusting, just body rendering, uh, rending, uh, experience into something very enjoyable to read about so uh badwater ultra marathon by Colleen konochan uh highly recommended so uh coach doesn't have anything to recommend so we still got two recommendations out of it though so i think we still meet our quota there we uh, go. But make sure we we finally did it. We got all three of us on the podcast together. It was a great achievement. I think that momentum is likely to carry us forward to Cody Pickett being on the podcast next week. We're getting ever closer. So thanks for listening and go dogs. Go dogs, baby. Go dogs.